Well, the Lord continues to give us opportunities to uh, tap into the sweetness of His grace for us. I'm continually encouraged and so very thankful and uh, at your brightness, at your courage, uh, when these little challenges are thrown in the mix. We no doubt benefit by the fact that we uh, are a bit uh, expeditious in our own genetics of Providence Reformed Baptist Church, so it's not thankfully uh, terribly difficult for us to move the tabernacle, as it were, from one place to another, and uh, so I'm very grateful. I pray the Lord will give us a real sense of spiritual depth and growth, even as we commit ourselves to meeting together in challenging times. So... I'd like to address, as you heard, Philippians chapter 3. We were in Ephesians last week. This, this is another iteration of that sweep through the Bible here. As we look at the work and the progress of redemption through the Bible here, it's appropriate that we consider the topic today in Philippians chapter 3, and that is ever-deepening fellowship with Christ. Ever-deepening fellowship with Christ. If you listened last week... No doubt, likely the key word that you remembered is fellowship. That uh, really could also be the case this week as well. And the idea comes actually from verse 10 of chapter 3 here. Uh, I recognize that if you're using the English Standard Version, you don't actually have the word fellowship in your Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. But nonetheless, the idea is there, and it has to do with this... Very grandiose desire that the Apostle Paul longs for that really is summarized in verse 10. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share, this is the word for fellowship, His sufferings, becoming like Him in in His death. Uh, And so this is the idea. But let's back up a little bit as we consider... Really, this uh, the the whole thrust of the thought here that the Apostle Paul is bringing us, and that uh, I think it's appropriate for us to look here at verse two. And we have a very strong warning as he again encourages them to rejoice in verse one. Again, this is a this is a. This is a prison epistle. The Apostle Paul writes this from prison. Uh, He says, yet again, rejoice in the Lord. And then verse 2, look out for the dogs. Very strong language. Um, And one of the things that it it might be that uh, we're perhaps not so familiar with um, is uh, the addressing of erroneous theology. And uh, we... We live in an age when, uh, you know, many evangelicals desire to, as the Apostle Paul would say, have their ears tickled. But even those who are uh, studiously working away from that idea, wanting to bring the full counsel of God, yet there is sometimes uh, perhaps a little bit too much energy uh, on this idea that we're not going to bring up the negative, as it were. And the Apostle Paul, uh, it would be helpful for us to understand. If you were to read the pastoral epistles and also all of Pauline's, all of Paul's epistles, you would likely notice that he spends a lot of time refuting error. 
Uh, and he's doing that here in this passage as well. Uh, and he does it in no uncertain terms. He accuses or really labels those with this false theology as uh, a very derogatory term. Watch out for the dogs. Now that's that can be considered... Uh, rather incendiary language. But nonetheless, what we should see conveyed from the Apostle Paul here is the simple urgency of the matter. And he gets right to it. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision. Now, recognize very much that uh, particularly for folks that are not uh, fully read in, as it were, into this idea of circumcision in the Scriptures. Uh, nonetheless, the basic idea was is that the Judaizers of the day, those Jewish folks who came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, were yet still committed to this physical act of circumcision that marked the covenant given to Abraham, uh, this idea of circumcision. Now, So there was an insistence that one couldn't be uh, considered justifyingly righteous unless they had this mark upon them. And the Apostle Paul, again, is not sidestepping the issue. He is not soft-peddling the issue. As a matter of fact, he says, and this is one of the grand purposes that we are looking through all of the Bible here to see what the Lord is doing, really chronologically, if you were, in the Scriptures, is to see that the ultimate fulfillment of circumcision has nothing to do with a flinty rock or a part of the uh, physical body of an individual. It has to do with a spiritual thing that only God can do in regeneration. As a matter of fact, he makes the absolute, ultimate, and declarative statement, we are the circumcision. We are the, Nothing could be more clear. The Apostle Paul is saying, only by giving life in the Lord Jesus Christ, the sign now is not in fact a physical sign that one can see, but it is an invisible sign brought about by the Holy Spirit. And the Apostle Paul is saying, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God, glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Not even a little piece of flesh. There's a little bit of a play on words here, but nonetheless, the idea is the Apostle Paul, nothing in our flesh, no fleshly idea, no, none of our glory days will help us. None of, our, uh, none, none of our genetics will help us in this. And the Apostle Paul is making that very clear. We are the circumcision. He's drawing a sharp distinction between the right approach to God and the wrong approach to God. Confidence in comprehensive orthodoxy is a beautiful thing. What is addressed here is primarily justifying righteousness. But the larger context has to do with one's entire understanding, not only of justifying righteousness, but how one learns about and grows in one's understanding and experience of God. Our Ephesians work last week revealed an unbreakable connection between an earnest pursuit of holiness and real, genuine fellowship with Christ and His people. This passage reveals an unbreakable connection between 
experiential knowledge of Christ and real genuine fellowship with Christ. In other words, the idea brought about in Ephesians, this again, as we look at our sweeping work through the Bible, this idea of fellowship, uh, particularly as we grow in grace, right? And this song that we sang uh, this morning couldn't, couldn't have been more helpful as we consider, again, what it is that God is doing. How does He work in our lives? And what we see in the book of Ephesians that we looked at last week was this idea that we cannot grow, we cannot put on, as it were, these graces of Christ and take off and put off these sinful habits that we have outside of the intimate fellowship with God's people. It is for that purpose. It's not, it's not to give us bragging rights that we're, we're doing so great. There's no room for that. The Apostle Paul assures us that in the context, as a matter of fact, in many ways, for the purpose of the fellowship, God intends to bring us to a place of greater holiness. We connected this very idea, why am I telling the truth instead of lying? Ephesians indicates that the reason that we do that has primarily to do with the name of Christ and the people of God. Why am I going to get a job and steal no longer? The Bible, again, indicates that the grand purpose for that actually has to do with giving in the context of the body. And so we see this idea and we see this concept of fellowship now applied to the experiential knowledge of Christ. Now, again, the idea here is this. There are a good number of people uh, that often ask and are earnestly involved in serious study of the Word of God. They want to know God. Well, let me back up a moment. There are some people that very much want to know the Bible. They want to know the Bible, and unfortunately, what happens often is there is, unfortunately, a bit of a pernicious goal in them learning the Bible. It often has to do with this thing that is often associated with the desire for faithful theology, and that is this idea that theology is about arguing. But theology isn't about arguing. Theology is about understanding and applying rightly the Word of God. And what the Apostle Paul is telling us in Philippians chapter 3 is that, yes, there is a grand urgency for those who have been given life in Christ to then know Christ. But often, because we're a people who in some ways are drawn into uh, the formal concept of education and learning, we are persuaded, potentially, that the way to learn Christ is only in this idea of objective learning. That it is that is of reading a text and thinking about that text. Well, I've got some very, very good news for you today. It's not only that. It's not only that. Now, I recognize that there are some folks here that say, well, I, I, I just don't read. Well, I, you're not going to be let off the hook in the Scriptures. You're going to have to read. Okay, You're going to have to read faithful theology. You're going to have to read the Scriptures. However, if you're persuaded that only by reading the Scriptures and the best books, that then in that way, and primarily even in that way, you will know God, then the Apostle Paul is placing you on notice here that, no, no, in fact it has something to do with something that you might not have expected. 
it, it is directly associated with this phrase that likely you'll find in the older translations in Philippians 3.10, and that is simply this, the fellowship of His sufferings. Now, why don't you just repeat that with me, would you? The fellowship of His sufferings. It's possible that you might be saying, I'm not interested. That doesn't sound like something that's going to keep my uniform clean, as it were. It sounds a little bit dirty. It sounds a little bit ugly. It sounds a little bit difficult. It sounds a little bit sweaty. It sounds a little bit like people tramping through my house when I'm not ready for them. It sounds like all kinds of stuff, right? But what the Apostle Paul is saying is, you, because you've been given life in Christ, you want to know me. You want to know me. All of the Scriptures are here for you. And you should be, you should be thankful all day, every day, that you have printed there in black and white for you the complete, comprehensive, and total, inerrant Bible in front of you. But the Lord Jesus is saying this, You'll not know me if that's all. You'll know me in the context of the fellowship of His sufferings. Now, let's look and see how he gets to this idea. We begin here in verse 7. He says, Whatever gain I had, I count as loss. Whatever gain I had, from that which I had confidence in the flesh... In other words, the Apostle Paul says here, he isn't one, uh, of course, who often spends much time in this biographical nature. The Apostle Paul is, doesn't involve himself in narcissus. The Apostle Paul involves himself in explaining who God is and what we're to do about it. But what he says here is that he has great reason. These mutilators of the flesh, these Judaizers, they were very confident In their Hebrew roots, they were very confident in their circumcision. They were very confident that they could name the tribe from which they came. They were very confident that they grew up uh, with the Old Testament and so forth and so on. And the Apostle Paul says, he's not proclaiming that's a bad thing, but what he is saying very definitively is upon those things, there can be no basis for righteousness. If you are confident in yourself about anything... That has no bearing. As a matter of fact, it's counted as rubbish according to knowing Christ and being associated with Him. This idea of confidence in the flesh has to do with this verb that means persuade or urge. Confidence in the flesh, think about it. When you're really wanting to convince somebody of something, what do you often do? Well, you begin to persuade and urge people about certain confidences that you have in your flesh. But what about this degree and this place where I went and this job I had and these people that I knew and this kind of car that I used to drive and this thing, this way I fixed it and so forth and so on. And the Apostle Paul says, no, 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 that's not it. Perhaps it's confidence in a prayer you prayed. Perhaps a special moment when you said yes to Jesus. Perhaps confidence because the faith that has been modeled for you has little interest in pressing on toward the upward call in Christ Jesus. So therefore you boldly profess your own faith 
but realize there is no alien love for Christ, for His Word, and for His people. Hear hear me now. I'm applying this passage of Scripture to other things that we may have confidence in. We may have confidence that our parents have professed faith. And we may have so much confidence in our own faith because it may be that those people that we look to really don't have an active faith. And they make us comfortable in our inactive faith. Do you see what I'm saying? And so that would be to have confidence in that which is in fact fleshly. There's no alien love. And the alien here isn't talking about little green Martian men. The idea here is, as the Apostle John says in his three little epistles, is there a love for God, a love for His people, and a love for His Word that didn't come from inside of you, that had to come from the regenerating work of God? If you have confidence in the flesh, if you have confidence in that love that you have conjured up, then the Apostle Paul, of course, is affirming that that is not justifying righteousness. He says he counts it as loss, verse 7. I count it as loss. Now, the Apostle Paul isn't uh, just simply using self-deprecating language here. He isn't saying, well, you know, it would be okay if it was this way or that way. Now, it's important that that we understand the Apostle Paul here, what he's doing is he's giving to us a theologically realistic and accurate statement of the truth. It is loss. It's not just neutral, right? It works against what it is that God is doing and what He intends to do in the life of an individual. Confidence in the flesh sets us back in our association with our Savior. It's radically offensive to come to Christ on our own terms with a flimsy substitute for His righteousness. We we have nothing to offer the Lord Jesus regarding our own righteousness. We, there are no excuses. There are no connections. There are no reasons why. There's no, we are not a beauty spot in the eyes of God. He gives us life because He loves us, period. And so then, what's for us to do, as the Apostle Paul says, is to press on for this high calling that he speaks of right here in this passage. the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. On the road to Damascus, the Apostle Paul, for the first time, finally saw who he really was. He finally saw who he really was in association with a righteousness of Christ. What did that look like? Well, it wasn't a Hebrew of Hebrews. It wasn't as one who was circumcised on the eighth day. It wasn't one who was of the tribe of Benjamin. It wasn't one who, regarding the law, was a Pharisee. It wasn't one who, regarding his commitment to God, persecution of the church, as he says. It wasn't that. 
No, what the Apostle Paul came to understand on that day in the road to Damascus was that he was a deluded, self-righteous sinner bound for hell. A deluded, self-righteous sinner bound for hell. That's what the Apostle Paul understood. And he is yet applying this same idea here in Philippians chapter 3. And he goes on. Verse 8, indeed, I count everything as a loss. Not only that grandiose past that I have everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things. These are meritorious works that He previously counted on. There is some association with verse 13 here. This idea of forgetting what lies behind. There's a recognition that when Paul leaned on his own impressive reputation, he fatally impacted his possibilities for saving fellowship with Christ. When the Apostle Paul leaned on his own impressive reputation, he fatally impacted his possibilities for saving fellowship with Christ. I have a little bit of a, perhaps an odd personal story to this. You know, in the military, often senior officers place a rank decal on the front left portion of their windshield because they come into the base every day. And it would be important for whoever sees them to understand their rank, or at least they're persuaded that that's true. And nonetheless, it often has occurred to me that I would like to challenge these men to take the sticker off. Take the sticker off. Because what it tells me is the most important thing about them is their rank. And that is precisely what the Apostle Paul is getting at here. On that basis, you have nothing to do with God. That's what, that's what he's saying. Your glory days, your reputation, your pet priorities, your theological second and third tier issues, these things that you can't live without. The Apostle Paul is saying, look, 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 those things are counted as rubbish and you use them as excuses for doing that which you shouldn't do. And the Apostle Paul is saying that today. As a matter of fact, he says, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things. Scrape off the rank decal. Count them as rubbish. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to do that? Are you? Can you recognize that? You should be very grateful for the way the Lord has brought you to this point in your life. You should be very grateful and understand that only a sovereign God who's sovereign over every molecule of your body has brought you to this very point today. But it's also important for us to recognize that those things, right, cannot contribute to the fellowship and the sufferings of Christ and my growth in Him to the extent that He's referring to here. In verse 9, He says that we're to be found in Him, not having a righteousness of our own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Now, why? 
Why? Why would you want to have an association with God in this way? Why, why would you want to know Christ? It's important that we see the running illustration, uh, pardon the pun here, in this entire passage actually has to do with running. Right? It has to do with this earnest eagerness of the Apostle Paul, uh, as it is known, was well familiar with the games in Greece, and he understood, of course, that running was a pretty important part of that. And so what you have in here is when we have this eagerness, this earnestness, the, the illustration here is of an Olympic runner. When he's leaning, stretching eagerly, this idea is toward the finish line. And that would be certainly true for any runner who's in such a competitive race. He's got to make a decision. Do I make another step or do I stretch? Do I step or stretch? Step or stretch? Right? Do I lean forward? Do I fall into the finish line or do I try to make another and the Apostle Paul is thinking about that very thing here. That's the idea. This is, this is how earnest, this is how zealous he is. This, is. this is what he's talking to us. This is what he's describing to us as normal. This is normal Christian life. You say, well, I don't run the Olympics every day. Well, the Apostle Paul's normal day was like this. No, we're not apostles, right? But he, we see this, this earnestness, this leaning forward. That I may know Him, verse 10. That I may know Him. It refers to knowledge of mind and heart. Knowledge of mind and heart, that I may know Him. The first shouldn't be excluded, but the emphasis here is on the second. Now, there is a slight fear that I have in my bones right now as I look over this, because I don't want to give you the impression uh, that you shouldn't uh, consider buying that theological book, uh, or that you should uh, perhaps spend less time reading your Bible, because I happen to know that you are like me, and that you don't read your Bible as much as you should. I know that is true. So, uh, and so don't leave that off. But it's important for us all to recognize that in this day, in our culture, what does our culture do? What does our culture value? Does our culture value experiential understanding and knowledge? Not at all. Our culture values a little document, a little piece of paper that says bachelor's degree. That's what our culture worships. And if you know anything about the educational system today in our own nation, you will recognize that it is fallen on hard times. It has fallen on hard times. Now, there's no reason to reject formal education, but my point is this. We are potentially fixated on this idea that we take in information in a certain way, and the Apostle Paul is again placing us on notice that yes, we must know the Scriptures. But the goal here, the upward call of Christ Jesus, will be, yes, involving objective truth, which we must know, but the Apostle Paul is also saying that what he is, what he is saying here is that there is an emphasis in this nitty-gritty work of the fellowship of the sufferings of Christ in this. That I may know Him. 
that I may know Him. Now, if you're sitting here today and, and you don't have this urgency to know Christ, then, then this is a reason for you to begin, again, to kind of think about your own relationship to Christ. You say, well, I don't, I don't know that I really care a whole lot about that. I don't know that I really care a lot about life in Christ in that way. I'm, I'm kind of happy about what I understand to be justifying faith. I'm kind of happy that I have this, this sort of ticket out of hell, so to speak. But, but I really have no interest in anything else. In the prenatal medical world, we call that failure to thrive. And the concern there isn't that the baby won't do well, it's that the baby will die. If you have no desire to live in Christ, then you really do need to take a very urgent and important look at what you're calling saving faith. If you have no desire to involve yourself in the fellowship of the challenges of God and His people, then it is an absolute urgent call for you to really reconsider where you are with God. Because the Apostle Paul is also saying that this is indicative of the sign of life. He says, we are the circumcision. We who worship spiritually. And when the Lord Jesus Christ was speaking to that woman on the well in John chapter 4, He said, My Father is looking for worshipers who will worship Him in spirit and truth. It's interesting how many seem to measure a thing by its capabilities to carry or promote knowledge of mind while completely overlooking the grand necessity of knowledge of heart. This has nothing to do with feeling. I want to make sure that I I carry this message. When the Apostle Paul is referring to this knowledge, which is not objective knowledge, which I'm referring to as knowledge of the heart, the idea here isn't that you feel it. That's not it. It's not that somehow it's sensory. That's not the point at all. It's not that you have a warm, gushy feeling now about the things of God. That is absolutely not what the Apostle Paul is saying. But what he is saying is this. You really have little claim to an earnest desire to know God until your fingernails have dirt under them. Until you have involved yourself in this continual process of the fellowship of the sufferings of Christ. What did he do in his daily life? What was the life of Christ like? It was not a walk in the park. Now, that doesn't mean that he didn't have these times, these quiet times, where he had some special time with the apostles and some special time with his father as he prayed. The point isn't that. The point is we're a people uh, who, who are made alive in Christ and desire because of this life to know Christ. And it's important we should ask ourselves the question, how do I do that? And again, we may opt out. We may say, well, I, I, I want to study this way and that way. And that's very, very good. But what Paul is saying is, look, look in order to really know God, you're asking, you, you want to know it's about Jesus. Well, yeah, it is. But, but look here, here's the, here's the point. Here's the point. You got to do the dishes. That's what Paul is saying. You want to know Jesus and you want to you want to kind of opt out of 
certain things. But the Apostle Paul is saying, no, no, if you really want to know Christ, you, you're, you're going to have to involve yourself in the fellowship of, of His sufferings, of the challenges of the day, of the dirtiness. That's the idea. It has to do with walking in Christ's shoes, doing what He did and what He does. To those He has sovereignly set before us, this is experiential knowledge. You say, well, I, I really want to serve somebody over in some other place. Well, okay. <clears throat> well, here's a question for you. Where do you live right now? Have you exhausted? Have you exhausted everything that you can do for the Gospel in the place where you live right now? Is there really? There's no. The garden is completely uh, 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 spread out where you live. There's there's no other place to water and to grow and to plant beautiful flowers. Everything around me is Eden now. It's there's as far as I can see. It's all green and fertile land. Is that the case? Well, no, of course not. Most of us don't have to look beyond our own front door to see there's work to do. This is a window into the doctrine of vocation. How is it that we know God? Luther very astutely and very comprehensively brought a biblical understanding to this doctrine of vocation. And he firmly understood that we, when we exhaust ourselves in what it is that God has called us to do, whether it's to be a homemaker, to be a plumber, or whatever the case may be, we exhaust ourselves and tap into this life of Christ very quickly in our vocations. And we begin to involve ourselves in this fellowship of Christ in our vocations, in the fact that, oh, well, I, wow, I don't, I don't know how to do that. I, I don't feel like I can uh, get up that early, or I don't think I can accomplish it. Well, I mean, you're right. That would be, as the Apostle Paul understood on that road to Damascus, that would be a rational, reasonable thought that you had, but that is the very point. You're right, you can't do it. And the Apostle Paul said, when I am weak, then he is strong. If what you're accomplishing is stuff you can do, your God is too small. You think way too much of yourself. This is not an admonition to foolishness, but it is an admonition to understand what God is doing and how can I know Him and pursue this idea of this upward call of God in verse 14? <clears throat> William Hendrickson said, One gains this knowledge by wide-awake attendance at public worship, by proper use of the sacraments. By showing kindness to all, by practicing the forgiving spirit, by practicing love, by learning to be thankful, by studying the Word devotionally. I'm going to slow down in a minute and exegetically so that it dwells in the heart, by continuing steadfastly in prayer, by redeeming the time as a witness of Christ. Let's take these a little more slowly. Wide awake attendance at public worship. 
it seems like a pretty clear statement, but this is this is a very important idea. Uh, there there are some who would consider this a rather ho hum meeting. I I understand that you come for lunch, okay? But but what is set before you is the proclamation of the word of God, and the understanding is that is that if done in a biblical way that this is a very significant source of life for you. And so if you, if you cast off these things, then you really should consider yourself as a person who is drowning, but who is pushing off those people that are trying to... You say, well, I would rather have this or that. Wide awake attendance at public worship. What is the Lord telling me today through His Word? The proper use of the sacraments. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. We take the Lord's Supper every week. We do that for a number of reasons, not least of which we're persuaded that is a scriptural model. But nonetheless, it does bring us to a point of assessment and examination every single week. And that is part of the Apostle Paul's idea here. As a matter of fact, he says in verse 13, this is one of the ways that he strains toward this goal. He says, I do not consider that I have made it my own. He says, I do not consider that I have made it my own. Now, I ask you a question. How did he come up with this assessment of his understanding, of his condition? What is he saying? He says, I'm not there yet. Now, how did he come to that conclusion? Self-examination. Where am I with God? What am I thinking about today? What are my priorities? What do I see is a true, reasonable understanding of life in Christ? Where am I going with this? And that's, that is a self-assessment, and that is one of the proper uses of the sacraments, not only for God's people, but for those who don't know Christ, those who would long to be a part of the communion of the saints in that sense, but cannot let that be something that they rectify in every way they can by coming to Christ, practicing the forgiving spirit, We probably spend a good bit of mental energy expressing things that likely wouldn't be categorized as the forgiving spirit. Practicing love. Learning to be thankful. Studying the Word devotionally and exegetically so that it dwells in the heart. These sorts of things. Martin Lloyd-Jones has something to add to this associated. He says, knowledge of Christ doesn't stop with objective knowledge, but with fellowship and living communion. To know Christ is to be more like Him. To know Christ is to be more like Him. Now, here's a question. It, It is possible 
it is possible that there are certain people that you would like to know more about, but you don't want to be like them. Is that true? Uh, there are certain people that you, you would like to know more about, but you have no desire to be like them. But it would be important for us to understand that this path that we're on together, walking to Zion, is not only to know Christ, but this idea that to know Him is to be like Him. And to be like Christ, again, would require a fellowship in His sufferings. A fellowship in His sufferings. Verse 10, he says, that I may know Him, the power of His resurrection. Paul longs for an ever-increasing supply of power that proceeds from the risen and exalted Savior. This destroys sin. It makes room for personal holiness. It makes room for effective witness-bearing. The power of Christ's resurrection. Think of it. What is it? Well, it's the absolute pinnacle of the declaration of God as who God is. Raising one from the dead. The power of His resurrection. And then as I have mentioned here, the fellowship of His sufferings. Hopefully you'll forgive an illustration from Tolkien's Fellowship of the Ring. You may or may not recall that it seemed to be part of the genetic makeup of a hobbit that they had no inclination to adventure. No inclination to adventure. But what we also understand is that Bilbo and Frodo, these great characters in the story, were inclined or at least encouraged to adventure. And this adventure had to do and was in fact labeled the Fellowship of the Ring. And this was a fellowship that involved what? Merely sitting around fires and smoking pipes? No. It was a fellowship that involved suffering and death. And so, when it has that label, you may say, well, that seems to be kind of a mislabel, the fellowship of the ring. No, I I think that Tolkien fully affirms his Christian understanding of that fellowship. And this... This, uh, I think, can be of some assistance to us as we embrace the same idea. I am hoping that we're back to our normal place of worship next week, but nonetheless, all of you that worship with us today will look back on this day and say, yeah, I was there on the 21st of May when we met in a little bit warmer condition in the joiner's barn. Yeah, I remember that. Those were sweet times. The Apostle Paul understood suffering as a privilege, as beatings, as stonings, as hunger, thirst, cold nakedness. It also includes the experience of hatefulness and hurt for one's own sins. 
The desire to participate in the sufferings, part of the intense longing and striving for complete holiness. You got to admit, you got to admit, when you read about people that have been involved in very difficult things and they have these amazing experiential sort of reports about it, you got to admit that, that on your best days you kind of say, wow. I kind of wish I was there. I wish I could I wish I could have experienced that so that I can then so that I can then add that to my own understanding of life and of connection to Christ. I really do wish that I was there. And maybe you don't fully understand what it means to go without food for a long time or be really hot or whatever the case may be, but nonetheless, no doubt you've thought about about those things and that's what the apostle Paul is getting at and helping for us to understand. Verse 11, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The idea here really is out of the dead. Resurrection out of the dead. We know that we enjoy Christ's resurrection. Resurrection life, spiritual resurrection life for us begins the day that we're born again. We're going to get new bodies, but if we're... If we have been given life in Christ, our own spiritual understanding is not going to have some tremendously marked change when we get to heaven because we've already been given spiritual life. But we also understand that as he says in Ephesians, uh, we understand that, that there is this put on, put off thing, right? There's still this unredeemed flesh about me that's got to be peeled off this part and this part out of the dead. I'm resurrected out of the dead. And this is the idea that the Apostle Paul is getting at. Verse 12. Again, why? Because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Now this is another very important expression of perhaps a reality that you haven't fully grasped. And the Apostle Paul is making it very clear that when he came to faith in Christ, he didn't lay hold of Christ. That wasn't, that wasn't a very good description of what occurred. What the Apostle Paul is saying is if I can describe this better, what actually happened is that Christ laid hold of me. Christ laid hold of me. And my life was never, ever the same. Verse 13, the one thing I do, this is concentration. Again, this running motif, this idea that you never, you never look. You never look. When you're, running, when you're running in a race, you never look. What I mean by that is you never look to the side. And certainly we see here that the Apostle Paul also says, <clears throat> forgetting what lies behind. You ever tried to run while you look backwards? Not a good idea. You've tried it. You tried it, and you've fallen. Not looking behind. Concentrating, right? Looking forward. This is part of this. There's self-examination involved. There's, you say, well, you mean i got to concentrate when I'm thinking about growing in Christ? You mean it's, it's this sweating work, as Bunyan says, believing is sweating work? Yes, concentration. It's also obliteration, forgetting what lies behind, not resting on past experiences. 
This is the day of distraction, and distractions are dangerous. Disastrous, actually. There's exertion. There's a straining forward. Verse 13. Straining forward to what lies ahead. And there's a pressing on. I'm pressing on. I'm pressing on. You say, well, I'm not a runner. That's okay. I used to be one. I'm not one either, really. That's not what we're talking about. Right? This is spiritual stuff here. Spiritual stuff. I'm pressing on. Questions? Do I know Christ? Do I know Christ? Not only objectively. Not only objectively. We can't be Jesus, right? And we can't be an apostle. But we can grow in our knowledge of Him. And that is what life is all about. Right? It's about growing in Christ. Am I like Him? Am I being made conformable to His death? Don't be afraid to ask yourself the question. Don't be afraid to quantify your answers. Am I like Christ? You say, oh yes, I am. Okay, well the next question that follows is, how are you like Christ today? How? What, what is happening spiritually in your life? What marks do you have to indicate that in fact you're a living, breathing believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? Am I being made conformable to His death? Conformable to His death. What does that mean? That means, am I being conformed to that which is getting rid of the sin and the unredeemed flesh in my life? Those things which He died for. This is an interesting idea. Again, the same sort of notion here. Conformable. Conformable, conforming, this idea that we're, uh, when we're being conformed, what does that look like? It means taking something that's very bent and trying to make it very straight. When you're talking about something physical, like a piece of bent wood or a piece of bent metal, You're talking about some pretty significant forces that are applied to that thing to make it straight. It could be steam or heat. It could be a hammer. It could be ropes. It could be a vice. It could be clamps. There's no ropes, vice, or heat associated with this, but we know there are spiritual things that are quite demanding. We've been apprehended by Christ. We're no longer to be trafficked by the devil. He should be the center of my life, the object of my every goal. Let us pray.